Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come into your presence this morning with our Bibles in our hand, knowing that we serve a God who is interested in speaking to his children. And Father, I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would come and take my lifeless words and through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit turn them into life in our lives and change us that we may be more like Jesus. We thank you, Father, for answering this prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I appreciate your patience with me as we have steadily been working our way through the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. I assure you this morning that there are just a few more studies left. There's much more that could be said, but we are going to tie this off because there's other things in the Word of God that we want to study. But we have a few more presentations on this. And this morning, as we shift gears a little in the study of 1 Corinthians 13, I want to read a passage to you that we've read a couple of times, and I want to look at it in a different way. We've kind of been looking at this particular statement in a bit of a negative context, but this morning I want to spin it on its head and look at it in a positive way. Uh, As the Southern Review, January 1 of 1901, makes this statement, he only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. You've, You've read this before, and this is a biblical principle, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So uh, the Bible tells us we can't know God truly unless we have this love for our fellow brothers and sisters. Now it goes on and it says this, this is the reason why, or this is the reason that there is so little genuine vitality or life in our churches. There's little life in our churches because there's little love for one another in our churches. She goes on and she says, theology is valueless unless it is saturated with can hold as much as possible the love of Christ. Now, there's two things I want to mention here, and it's this. If it is true, and she says it is, that there is little vitality or life in the church of God when there is little love, that means that when there is much love, there is much life. There is much vitality. There is much vigor that comes to the church that has agape in their hearts. The other thing is true, and that is this, if theology is valueless when there is little love, that means that when there is much love, that theology is of great value. So we can look at this two ways. Again, it is in a positive or in a negative context, but in the positive context, there's much good that comes to the church of God when we take what we've been studying and apply it in our lives. She goes on, God is supreme. His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the solemnitude of the character of God. I'll be honest with you. As I studied 1 Corinthians 13, as I went through this the first time several months ago, uh, I did not realize how life transformative this was going to be for me. And I pray it's been that way for you as well. As I've gone through verse by verse and searched my heart and compared it to my life, it has changed my life in a way that really no other study has up to this point. Now, I trust that the Lord has other things that he's going to use to continue that changing process, but this has been very transformative 
for me and my family, and I trust that it has done the same by God's grace for you. We have found in our study that this chapter has been, it has been divided into three sections, and we've looked at the first two already. Uh, the outline of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, we have the supremacy of uh, agape, and that is where Paul makes five contrasting statements showing how agape is better than the gifts of the Spirit outlined in chapter 12. In verses 4 through 7, Paul talks about the characteristics of agape, or he analyzes it, he takes it, and he breaks it down into its component parts so that we can understand what agape really is. It's not just the theoretical word that floats around, but he puts flesh on it as he describes agape in the context of not only Jesus, but what God's people will look like in the last days when Jesus comes back. And then in verses 8 through 13, Paul talks about the permanence of agape and how it will never come to an end. And that's what we're going to shift gears into now in this study this morning as we look at the permanence of agape. Go with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to begin this section. Paul, as he begins the third and final section of 1 Corinthians 13, he starts with three words that just really put everything into context for us. 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to look at verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Paul starts off and he says this, Charity, or agape, never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Paul says, charity never what? Now, If you want something to think about this afternoon as you're walking around in the sunshine, as you are sitting in your backyard enjoying the warmer temperatures or whatever it may be, take those three words and and mentally masticate them. Chew on them over and over again. Charity agape never faileth. And as you chew on those three words, pray and say, Lord, what does this mean in my life? What does it mean to me? Now, it's an unfortunate translation using the word faileth. Charity never faileth. Uh, The better translation would look something like this. Charity never ends. So it never comes to an end, but it it continues forever. In fact, some translations of the Bible translate it that way, that agape never or charity never ends. Love never ends. Ends. Now, the best way that I could think of describing this, and this past week as I was thinking through this study once again, this is the passage of Scripture that came to my mind. In uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 35, the Bible says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Paul goes on in verse 38 and he says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of you are thankful for this? Amen? How many of you are thankful that nothing can separate you from the love of God? When we look at this Bible passage, it fills our heart with joy that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even death itself, not even the sins in my life can separate me from God's love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Even in my sin, God loves me. We are thankful for this Bible passage, but the question is this. We're thankful that God loves me that much. 
But the question is, do I love other people that much? When Paul says agape never ends, he's not just talking about God's love to me, but he's also talking about my love to other people. When he says agape never ends, that means that nothing should separate that current of agape love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing should sever sever that. Because nothing separates us from the love of Jesus, nothing should separate us from loving one another. Not even when I reject Christ and treat him and despise him and reject him, not even when I curse him, does that separate my love for him or his love for me rather. And the same should be true in our lives when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ that nothing should separate us from loving them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to remain in abusive situations or, uh, or, or, or compromised situations. There may be times where we need to physically remove ourselves from a situation, but that does not stop the current of love that should run from God through me to that individual. Amen? Nothing should separate us from loving one another. And that's what Paul means when he says, charity, agape, never ends. That's why we need to think about this. What does this look like in my life that agape never ends? When we get to heaven, we all know that the only thing we're gonna take there from this world is our character. That character that's been described very plainly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through seven. That's the character that's going to translate to the kingdom of heaven. None of the spiritual gifts, Paul tells us, are going to go to the kingdom of heaven. The only thing that will go there is that character of Jesus that's been reproduced in my life. And you see, this is what's going to make heaven such a wonderful place because heaven is going to be filled with people. Every single person in the kingdom of heaven is going to have the love of Jesus reproduced in their hearts. They will have selfless love towards one another. That's what's going to make heaven such a mind-blowingly wonderful place. The fact that we will all be looking out for each other's well-being instead of looking out for my own well-being. In fact, maybe you've heard this parable once before, but it was once told that a man asked God, let me see what heaven and hell look like. And so God in the parable shows the man hell and he takes him into this room and in this room there's a big round table in the middle of the table there's a nice beautiful pot of stew and that beautiful pot of stew smells so wonderful and everybody sitting around the table are thin and emaciated and 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 malnutritioned and are dying and he wonders to himself what's going on and he looks and he sees in everybody's hands are long spoons the spoons are so long that they can't get the ends of them in their mouth have you heard this before and this is what hell looked like because they're all trying to feed each other, feed themselves with these long spoons. And then he says, okay, I want to see what heaven looks like. And so God takes him over to where heaven is. And it's the same thing. It's a small room with a big table and a pot of stew in the middle. And everybody there is nice and plump and well-nourished. But yet they all have these long spoons in their hands. And what are they doing? That's heaven right? It's selfless interest towards one another. And let me tell you something, friends. If we don't have that here, we're not going to have it there. It has to start right here. 
where we're not talking about, you know, people behind their backs, or we're not, we're not looking for faults in other people's lives, or broadcasting them to other people, whatever that may be. It has to start here, where we have that selfless, disinterested love for one another, because Paul tells us that agape never ends. It never fails, but it continues throughout eternity. Today, There is much that is called love that begins very ardently and passionately but ends in tragedy. Divorce courts today are filled to overflowing with people who have lists as long as their arms for reasons why they are filing for that divorce. Love that once was a raging inferno has turned cold. Like a beautiful flower that has withered in the cold, so the love of others has begun to grow cold towards one another, whether it be between a spouse, husband, and wife, or relationships just in general. This is not the type of love that Paul is talking about. He says that love never ends. Why does agape never fail? Go back with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Look look at what it says in verse 7. Why does agape never fail? It says this, verse 7, Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and what? Why does agape not end? Why does it never fail? Because it bears, believes, hopes, and endures through the most trying of circumstances. It is something that is not of a human devising, but it is made in heaven and given to us by God. Now, Paul continues in verse 8. He says, charity never faileth. These are three bombshell words that are well worth us thinking about. But then he goes on and he begins to make a contrast or a comparison here. He compares between the present mortal state and the future immortal state. He makes these contrasting statements here. He says, he goes on and he says uh, that, if I can get here, there we go. Whether there be prophecies, they shall what? They shall fail. Now, this is, an, again, another unfortunate translation because as we understand it, the prophecies of God never fail. Amen. When God says something, it happens with 100% accuracy. It is 100% correct. Prophecies of God's word never fail. So it's an unfortunate translation. The better translation would be that prophecies shall be done away or prophecies shall come to an end or prophecies shall pass away. Let me ask you a question. When we get to heaven, are we going to need prophecy, yes or no? We're not going to need prophecy because we are going to be in the presence of one who knows everything. He knows all things. So we don't need prophets. We don't need a books of prophets. We can just go to Jesus and he knows the end from the beginning and he can tell us that. It's a spiritual gift that Paul is telling us will pass away. He's comparing between the present mortal and the future immortal. Prophecy shall cease, but love shall never cease. He goes on and he says, whether there be tongues, they shall what? Again, we have the gift of tongues that God has given to us. What a beautiful spiritual gift it is. We see it in Acts chapter 2 and various other places where God has given the manifestation of the gift of tongues to, to advance the cause of God. But I'm looking forward to the day when we don't have to have translators at church on Sabbath. It was a beautiful church service last week, wasn't it? Wonderful to have our church family from the Spanish group over there and be able to fellowship together. And we worked through it and it was a beautiful service. But I look forward to the time when the curse of the confounding of the languages of man is raised or is lifted up and all will be able to speak to one another in one language and in perfect harmony. 
Again, Paul is making the contrast here. Yes, the gift of tongues is important, but it is eventually going to cease when it has fulfilled its purpose. Whether there be knowledge, what does Paul say? It shall vanish away. Now, listen, it's not knowledge that he's talking about in the general sense of the term. It doesn't mean that when we get to heaven, we're all going to become dummies all of a sudden, okay? Uh, What Paul is talking about here is he's talking about the spiritual gift of knowledge in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 8, it talks about how God gives men the gift of knowledge, the gift of being able to explain things. Now, I don't know about you, but there are certain individuals in my life who I am thankful that God has brought them into my life to help me understand the word of God. They have been able to study it and understand it, and then they can pass along that knowledge through their words to me and other people. I'm thankful for these kind of people in my life. But the Bible tells us that when we get to heaven, we will be in the presence of one who is all-knowing. He knows everything, and he has the answers to everything, and so there won't be the need of other human beings explaining the word of God to us because we'll be with God who can explain it to us himself. That should make you excited. Whether there be knowledge, it shall cease. It shall vanish away. It's talking about the partial knowledge that we have. Thomas Edison once said, the, uh, the electrical wizard... He said this, no one knows even one hundredth part of one percent of anything. And you know, as I thought about this, this is no more true than it is when it comes to a spiritual context. When it comes to spiritual things, we don't know very much. We have a partial knowledge of God's word. We have a partial understanding, but I want to tell you something this morning. The partial understanding that we have of God's word is adequate enough to get us to the kingdom of heaven. Everything we have, everything we know, everything we understand from the word of God is enough to get us there. But brothers and sisters, it's only a partial knowledge. It's only a partial understanding. There is much more wealth of knowledge to be mined out of God's word. And when we get to heaven, I believe God is going to help us in that process. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 9. He says this. He says, for we know in what? We, we know in part and we prophesy in part. You see, what we know according to God's word, and even when it comes to prophecy, is only part of the equation. But when we get to heaven, the part is going to be done away with because we will be in the presence of the whole. Notice what he says in the next verse, verse 10. He says, but when that which is perfect shall come or is come, then that which is in part shall be what? Shall be what? Shall be done away with. So he says, when that which is perfect is come, who is the only one that is perfect in everything? He's talking about the coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes, when he who is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away with. I praise the Lord for that. I don't know about you, but that makes me excited that that which is in part is gonna be done away with because I will be in the presence of the one who is whole. The knowledge that we have right now is equivalent to a candle in, you know, being used in the nighttime, right? So at nighttime, you have a candle. It sheds the light and it's, you know, it's very helpful. But if I take that same candle and take it outside right now, how helpful is it? Might as well blow it out and wait till the sun sets, right? Because it's not very helpful. But in the nighttime, when it's dark out, 
when there's only a partial light, that candle is very helpful. You see, the candle that we have right now, the knowledge that we have right now is like a candle. But when Jesus comes, the son of righteousness, in the clouds of heaven, that candle is not going to do much in the presence of the son of righteousness. In the presence of the one who is all-knowing, who knows everything and can explain everything. And so in that sense, it will pass away because we won't need it anymore. Amen? That which is perfect has come. That which is in part shall be done away with. Sir Isaac Newton made this statement. Very intelligent man. He said, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself and now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Was this guy brilliant? Listen, I'm reading a book right now about that time period, and and he's in it quite a bit. I, I don't have the understanding to really understand the mathematical equation of gravity and how he even came to that conclusion. I don't have the know-how to build a telescope. You know, this guy was very intelligent. But he said, listen, uh, when I look at myself, it's like I'm just finding little pebbles and little seashells on the ground. Well, there's a great ocean of truth. And friends, that's what it's like right now. Our study of God's word is like finding smoother shells and prettier pebbles. But as, smooth, as pretty as those pebbles are and as pretty as those shells are, they keep drawing us to Jesus. But there's a great ocean of truth that needs to be understood, and that will not come until we are in the presence of one who is perfect. That's what Paul's talking about here. We know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, the part will be done away. Proverbs chapter 8, or Proverbs chapter 4, rather, verse 18 says, the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more until when? When's that perfect day? So what should our path be doing? It should be getting brighter and brighter and brighter the closer we get to Jesus. The more we abide with him, the more we spend time with him, the more we trust him, the more we give our will to him, the brighter and brighter our path will grow until we get to that perfect day and we are in the presence of that perfect one. I praise the Lord for this chapter because it's really helped me understand how I can be more like Jesus. But I want to close with a thought that was new to me this past week. Maybe you're smart enough to have caught it before I did. But it's in the 10th verse, which we've already read, of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in, that which is in part shall be, if we spend the majority of our time Investing in that which is in the part. When Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, we will be found wanting. What is the part? Spiritual gifts that are important. We need them. In fact, Paul tells us we should covet them. But they're secondary to agape. He makes that very clear. 
If we spend the majority of our time on that which is in part, the work that we render to the Lord, the spiritual gifts that I have or that our church has or whatever maybe the work that I do for the Lord, the conversions, the part, if we spend most of our time in that which is in the part, when Jesus comes, we will be found wanting because the part is going to be done away, but love will last forever. Did you catch that? Listen to me carefully this morning. If we can't love our spouse, if we cannot love our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, our family members, our coworkers, the same way that Jesus did, when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, whatever knowledge you have in your head, however well you kept the Sabbath or however well you had ate, ate your diet is going to mean absolutely nothing. Now, I want to be clear. We need to have knowledge about God's word. I want to be clear. We need to keep the Sabbath holy. And I want to be clear. We need to take care of our diet. But that's the part. If we emphasize that to the minimization of the other, we will be found wanting when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. Now, let me take this home tonight or this morning and make it very clear. Christ Object Lessons, page 158 says this. We may be active and we may do much work. That's the part. We, have to, we need to do this. I'm not suggesting that we need to sit around and do nothing. But what I'm suggesting is, is if this is what we do and this is it, without asking God to do the work of perfecting our character so that we can have the love of Christ inside of us, this is what she says. We may be active, we may do much work, but without love, such love as dwelt in the heart of Christ, we can never be numbered with the family of heaven. If all you do is work, if all you do is advance the cause of God and exercise your spiritual gift, if that's all you do, when Jesus comes, he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Because the kingdom of heaven is not going to be filled with people who have spiritual gifts because the spiritual gifts are going to be, they're going to be passed away when Jesus comes. That's the part. The kingdom of heaven is going to be filled with people who have that which lasts forever and that is agape love. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should just sit around and do nothing. I'm not suggesting that we should not, you know, study God's word and witness and share our faith, you know that's what we need to be doing. That's what our purpose is here on this earth. But before we do that, I'm gonna suggest to you this morning that that work would be much more effective if we've done 1 Corinthians 13 first. You see, we've kind of gotten our priorities mixed up in the Adventist church. We think if we, if we do evangelism, we're doing what we need to do and we'll be in the kingdom of heaven. I used to think like that. We think if we do Bible studies, that's all that's necessary. We think if we understand the, 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 the 28 fundamental beliefs, that's good. I know the truth. But brothers and sisters, there's gonna be a lot of people that know the truth that are in that room with the spoons trying to feed themselves and are dying because they can't do it. We really need to get serious about this and put the emphasis right where it needs to be. Lord, you need to change my heart. You need to make me like Jesus because I cannot do this on my own. 
Father, I want to be numbered with those in the kingdom of heaven. I want to be numbered with the saints. I want my work for you to be effective and effectual. I want my work for you to bring forth much fruit. And Father, I can't bring forth much fruit if I'm not connected to the vine every single day. I'm just taping that fruit on the vine. I'm just taping it on there. So this morning I appeal to you as my church family. You would have it out with the Lord as much as you can. Father, please make me into this loving, lovable person. That's the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. Maybe maybe over the past couple of months of me preaching these sermons, you've said, oh, another sermon on love. Just another sermon on love. I can hear this anywhere. I want to hear the meat. Brothers and sisters, this is the meat. I hate to, hate to surprise you on this, but this is the meat. Jesus isn't going to come and ask you, hey, do you understand the doctrine of the, of the 2300 days when he comes in the clouds of heaven? He's not going to say, do you understand what happens when somebody dies? We need to know that. But what he's going to ask is, Do you have my character? He's going to search you and try you and see if there be any wicked way in you because God is not going to risk sin rising up the second time. It's too big of a risk. He's not going to do it. He will not let selfish people in the kingdom of heaven. And 1 Corinthians 13 is all about selflessness. That's what it's all about. So my prayer for you is, is the same as it's been for myself. Listen, I'm not any better than you. Don't think that I'm preaching this in a way that, that, I'm superior in, in some way than you. We're all on this journey together. We're all on the journey of allowing God to change our hearts to be like Jesus. And so I pray this prayer with you. Lord, please help me to have the love of Jesus in my heart. I want to be numbered with the family of heaven. Is that something you want to say this morning? Father, please help me. Can't do it on my own. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your great patience with us. We thank you, Father, that you tenderly woo us and draw us to you. That you give us opportunities to reflect one day out of seven. The whole day just to spend reflecting on where I'm at with you. And dear Jesus, I pray that every single one of us would allow you to perform that perfect work in our lives, to do that heart surgery. And I pray that it would start right here on this pulpit. That each one of us, Lord, it would just disseminate out between, from here to, to all of us in our church and into our communities, with our family, and beyond there, Lord. Please help us to get things in the right order and the right priority. That our work may bring forth a bountiful harvest when Jesus comes to take us home. We thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Continue this work we ask because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.